This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On our podcast, we welcome leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists who shape our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters. Many of them are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country for us, visiting campuses and presenting free lectures that we invite you to attend. For the visiting scholar schedule, please visit pbk.org. Today, it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Yolanda Martinez San Miguel, Marta S. Weeks Chair in Latin American Studies at the University of Miami. Professor Martinez San Miguel specializes in colonial Latin American discourse and contemporary Caribbean and Latinx narratives, colonial and post-colonial theory, sexuality and gender studies, and migration and cultural studies. Currently, she is co-editing an anthology on contemporary archipelagic thinking and is working on her fifth book project using comparative studies to study cultural productions in the Caribbean and in the Pacific. I'm delighted to say she is a Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholar for the 2020-2021 academic year and will hold the position of the Frank M. Updike Memorial Scholar. Welcome, Professor. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. You have explored topics of identity and knowledge in the 16th and 17th centuries, all the way up to the present contemporary issues. And I do want to get to all of that. But first, I want to start a little bit with your story. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and who, as you look back on it now, influenced you to become a scholar. Well, I'm a native of Puerto Rico. I actually have to say that my first influence in becoming a literary scholar was my family because both of my parents were professors at the University of Puerto Rico. And so my father was a literary critic, but most of all, he loved telling storytelling. And so I think I inherited his curiosity for literature. And so very early on, I knew I wanted to be a literary scholar. What was your mother's feel? My mother was also in language, but she was in grammar, more like, a, you know, she did a lot of linguistics and, and grammar. What she gave me was actually the love for uh, proper language and proper writing, and she was very dedicated to that. So I think it was a good combination for the career that I ended up choosing. You took your bachelor's at the University of Puerto Rico, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what you studied there and was there a particular instructor who was influential in your in your thinking and your development? Yeah, well, I went to the University of Puerto Rico because at the time, knowing that I wanted to study uh, Caribbean literature, I had the option of, of going to a, an university in the United States, but I, I wonder, you know, why would I do something like that? And given that my parents were both professors at the University of Puerto Rico, I basically could go to school for free. And so I chose to stay, and I think it was great because I, I majored in Hispanic studies. For graduate work, you came to the mainland United States and uh, found your way to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. So what was that transition like? 
coming to uh, to the Bay Area and taking up your studies at University of California, Berkeley? Like I have to say I chose uh, Berkeley because my brother, who's an engineer, had done his master's at Berkeley and he just liked it. You know, I didn't know much about uh, the particular area. But one thing I found very important uh, from that particular school is that the two departments, I was in Hispanic studies, but my mentor was in comparative literature. And at Berkeley, these two departments shared the same corridor in the same building, and there were several joint appointments. So I was able to take courses in the two departments, and for me, that was very important. So let's talk a little bit about some of your work. And I would like to start with some of the earlier work, both in terms of chronologically for you, but also in terms of the period of history you were, we're talking about. So you've, you've done some uh, fascinating work on the structure of identity in colonial uh, New Spain, what today is Mexico. Why did you find that to be a useful place to look to study the, the concept of identity and what makes up identity? In a class, I discovered Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz, who's an, uh, a poet from the New Spain. She was a nun and got I fell in love with her poetry. She's constantly asking about her location as a woman in colonial Mexico that wants to uh, acquire an education, that wants to have something to say about knowledge acquisition. It was a complete change for me. It was totally unexpected. I, I never thought I was going to be working on the 17th century. I always said that I was not good in poetry, and there I was working with a poet from the 17th century. Who was she writing for? At that time, she was writing for an European audience, and so that was what I found so striking. In many ways, she was trying to say, I have something to say, I bring something to the table. And even when I'm a woman that is not allowed to attend university and who supposedly doesn't have the level of education, and even at that time it was believed that people that were born in the Americas did not have the same cognitive uh, capabilities. She insisted in saying I has something to say. Had she been a woman today, she would probably have been a philosopher, but that was not a place where she could participate. So literature became the space for her to talk about all these issues about knowledge for women and for colonial subjects in um, the New Spain or what we know as Mexico today. So in colonial um, New Spain, what role would you say the engagement between the, um, the Spaniards, the Europeans coming to that land and the indigenous people play in the whole construction of identity? Well, I guess among all of them. I mean, what, what impact does that have on the indigenous people and what impact does it have on the Europeans themselves, like your poetess, um, mm -hmm. who are engaging in some form or another with this indigenous population. So Juana does write about indigenous uh, uh, characters and actually includes Nahuatl in some of her poems. And so there is a very serious engagement with the indigenous population with a desire to claim she was a Creole woman. To, she was claiming that as a native of the Americas with an European education, she had better knowledge of the uh, indigenous and actually the black populations in Mexico than someone that was coming from Spain because she was raised there. She knew the culture. She was a participant of that culture. And so I think that it's a very interesting uh, detail to see how what as we look closer at the beginning, they will say that she was basically an European writer. Some of my mentors studied Sor Juana as an European writer. And little by little, she has become a Latin American writer that people are seeing uh, the innovative interventions that she's making in the representation of women, indigenous figures and black figures in Mexico in the 17th century. So I'm going to push you a little bit on some of the, the terms here. A European writer, a Latin American writer. 
Uh, so one fairly reductionist answer would be physically where is one located when one is putting pen to paper. I, I assume that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a deeper kind of construct than that to be a European writer as opposed to a Latin American writer. So how would you describe those those kinds of constructed identities? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question because at the time period, the concept of Latin America did not exist, neither did the no notion of Mexico. She writes before the formation of the nation. She actually does talk about being a native of the Americas. And so uh, there is a very famous poem of hers that she writes by the, you know, close to the end of her life is the Romance 51, Romance 51, where she actually talks about her European readers and her as a native of the Americas and how difficult it is for them to understand what she has to say. She sort of like says, I'm unreadable for my European counterparts, you know. She had a self-consciousness as, as an American, as, as someone Absolutely. from the Americas. Yes. So to what extent uh, can we think of her as a modern writer or is that just hopelessly anachronistic? I think she's very modern, and actually she's writing the 17th century from the perspective of epistemology. It's a moment in which we start, you know, a person like Descartes, René Descartes, starts theorizing the formation of secular knowledges. And so in many ways, her claim is that her condition as a colonial subject and as a woman gives her a different take on particular knowledge production that needs to be taken in account. And so in a way, that's, you know, that's extremely modern. We were talking about her as a uh, Latin American, to use the anachronistic phrase for her, or someone from the Americas, but now bridging into her as a as a feminist writer. And again, this was a self-conscious identity she had as as a woman writer. She doesn't use feminist as, as the as the name, but she talks about women's access to knowledge and her right to actually study and to ask questions that are basically trying to us uh, to strive to gain some knowledge. She talks about not being able to go to the university as something that she doesn't think is acceptable. She talks about women's education. And so I think that it's before we have feminism as a movement. And actually, uh, some people will question the term when it's to refer to her work. But Stephanie Merriam has a very important anthology that she edited that is feminist approaches to Sorwana. And so in a way, it's now a, like a known fact that she is considered a feminist even before we had the particular movement that created this particular category. So let's come up to the, to the present time now. One of the public lectures that you're going to do for Phi Beta Kappa as a visiting scholar covers the topics of uh, literature and artivism in Puerto Rico and Guam. Artivism is a portmanteau of art and activism, I assume. So how is artivism particularly used and relevant in uh, Puerto Rico and in Guam? So I actually learned the term from Chela Sandoval and Guisela La Torre, and they were actually writing about Chicano artists that use art to intervene in political uh, uh, debates or political context. And so this term was perfect for the kind of work I wanted to do because I found these two figures. I actually connected both of them. One of them paints um, a military debris that has been left behind in Culebra, Puerto Rico uh, after the Navy left. 
and uh, and so basically he paints says paints says uh, to make you know very visible the history of the island as a colony, but also he's in various ecological movements and some this this debris is basically damaging some of the ecology of the island. So he's I have to look for his name. His name is Jorge Acevedo Rivera. I found him and I was writing about him. This was by accident. I visited Culebra as a, as a tourist in my own country and found these tanks in the middle of the beach and was sort of like curious that they were so carefully painted and curated, you know. And so then I've, I've, I found out uh, that Craig Santos Perez, who is a native of Guam that teaches at the University of Hawaii, produces poetry, has a series of, of books entitled From Unincorporated Territory, and he has written four books on that. And they are about Guam's uh, very complex colonial uh, history. And so he uses a genre that apparently is very common in Guam, which is that when they are public hearings that um, that the U.S. military, the U.S. Navy does to decide what to do because Guam has been a source of debate in the United States in terms of how to use the region. Uh, when they do that, people go and perform poetry. Another topic that you are going to offer as one of your public lectures is what you call archipelagic studies. What does that field of study uh, entail? What is it about that that is a particular identifying factor for a field of studies? I got interested in archipelagic studies because, you know, after I devoted several several years of my life to work on Caribbean literature, I started in Hispanic literature and then educated myself, pushed myself to learn about Anglo-Caribbean and French-Caribbean literature. These are not, although they are Caribbean literatures, we don't study them in the same place because of the language barriers. And so once I did that, I started to think about the colonial situation. In some respects, islands tend to be treated similarly. And so both in the case of Spain and the United States, which are the two empires that I studied with more care, islands present several challenges because there is a discontinuity of territory. But even if you think about the arrival of Columbus to the Americas, he, he first arrives to the Caribbean. The approach that they have to colonization is totally different to the arrival of the Tierra Firme or the continental Americas. Because in the Caribbean, it's more extractive uh, colonialism. And once they arrive to the Tierra Firme, then they start to settle. And it's a different approach, you know. And so I was curious about it. Like, is, is, is it that the Caribbean has a different colonial experience than other islands that have gone through colonialism. And so I started started to read about Canarias and about the Philippines and about all these other regions and began to find more or less, not, not exactly, there are huge differences, but the same challenges. It challenges from the point of view of how the uh, indigenous population responds to the incoming or also challenges once the engagement of the colonial power settling in the area. I think both. Yeah, I think both. The indigenous communities, for example, in the Caribbean, they didn't respect different nations. We separate the different nations. We separate the different Caribbeans. But we know, for example, that Awakans actually established their chieftains in ways that sometimes included more than one island. 
no? And so for them, the islands were a, a scenario for, of movement that was totally separated from what we contemporarily define as nations. No? So that was one side. But then the other side is for the Spaniards or the Europeans, especially the Caribbean became this region of competition of the British, the French, the Dutch and the Spaniards. You know? But for and even for the United States, when they arrived to islands, the discontinuity of the territory sort of like starts creating uh, a series of questions of how are we going to take or administer uh, these overseas territories that are ours, but they're far away, you know, they're isolated, they're like difficult to control, people escape. And so it becomes an interesting question from both sides that I thought was a common denominator to take Caribbean studies out of its own corner and connect it with other regions of the world. Tony Morrison, the great Tony Morrison, talks about having to learn how to uh, to knock the little white person sitting on her shoulder off her shoulder, to stop writing for the white person sitting on her shoulder and to write an authentic African-American literature. And of course, she discovers that voice and transforms American letters. Really, is an astonishing uh, uh, body of work. But she's an African-American writing within the United States. Now, your Caribbean authors um, are not within the continental United States, but they're writing within a milieu of relationship with the West. I wonder, do they have a continental American white person on their shoulder they have to knock off? Are they writing for a white audience? How do they deal with that same Toni Morrison issue? Yeah, well, they, many of them are writing, like, for example, if it's in the Hispanic Caribbean, Puerto Rico, for example, is probably someone in the United States. But sometimes it's also this Hispanic identity that it's the claim to fame that some people will have because if you're trying to find a strong tradition that is well known by everybody. No, In the Anglo-Caribbean, the, the, it's interesting that many of the writers that participate in the formation of the West Indian lit literature that happens after the collapse of the West Indian Federation, uh, many of them are in London. Many of them have, uh, have gone away for many reasons, and they had to go away because there was not a press industry. There was not a reading public for them. And so they went away and then they came back. The same thing happens in the in the Franco-Caribbean. No, there's the Negritude movement. And so there's this notion of the importance of creating a literature that responds to the questions that are pertaining to the Caribbean. But sometimes that question begins in France. And then much later, in the in the case of the Anglo and the French Caribbean, we have the, the literature produced in, in Anglo Creole and French Creole. And so there's the question, do you write in French or in English so everybody can read you? Or do we write in our native Creoles that are read by less people but are ours, no? Right. This is this is the Salman Rushdie question, you know, whose language do I write in? Do I write in the very act of writing in the colonizer's language means I've been appropriated to that extent. On the other hand, uh, I want to be part of the discussion with that part of the world. There is no simple resolution to that. That's exactly. paradox. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it's more like instead of being one person, it could be more than one, you know, Western sort of like tradition that calls them to participate. But at the same time, it's just, you know, trying to create a public that I think is now there. The question is, how do we get access to this literature as outsiders in a way? On, on an earlier Key Conversations podcast, I was privileged to have Edwige uh, Dandika join us. Uh, she is, among other things, a distinguished uh, member of Phi Beta Kappa from Barnard College and, of course, a extraordinarily gifted writer and, and activist. I mean, she, mm -hmm. her involvement in Haiti after the earthquake is uh, 
transformative in, in, in many ways. Where do you situate her voice in this body of work or in this dialogue we've been talking about? Danticat is doing a beautiful job at uh, looking at the gaps in history and actually giving literature, that space literature gives you the poetic license to complete what we don't have in some of these archives or that we have in archives but people have not had access to that. And so, for example, in Farming of Bones, uh, you know, she actually explores the very difficult relationship between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And so I think she has done an amazing job and allow, at allowing that imagination to fill the gaps and allowing readers to then understand and learn about that history from a literary perspective. This is, after all, the Phi Beta Kappa Society. We're looking forward to having you with us this coming year. Uh, but we do a lot of reading lists, you know, of mm-hmm. all of our publications that we put out online and in the key reporter, the thing that people tend to focus on most are our book recommendations and our reading lists. So it seems to me, Professor, I should give you a chance to uh, to to give our listeners your syllabus. So if somebody was looking for a good point of entry into uh, Caribbean literature, what's on the reading list? What do you recommend? I will recommend Naipaul. And this is a very odd recommendation because many people do not necessarily think that he's a Caribbeanist. He's said very harsh things about the Caribbean. But if you go to the early Naipaul and he has a, a novel called Miguel Street, uh, it's a beautiful narration about uh, the entire diversity of Trinidad and the different communities that coexist in that island that not that many people, like people know he wrote this novel, but then he becomes later on a writer that sort of like talks about the derivative nature of Caribbean literature or Caribbean cultures. He says something that insults many Caribbean people. He says nothing important was invented in the Caribbean. But before he said that, there's this very important body of work about the intense uh, and complex cultural diversity of the Caribbean. Uh, he's of Indo-Caribbean, of Indian descent in the Caribbean. And so basically part of his difficulty sometimes is basically not finding places of identification in many of the Caribbean literature that has become uh, canonical. And so I will say that Naipoli will be a recommendation from Puerto Rico. This is not a new text by any means, but uh, Encancara Nublado is a short story collection by Ana Lidia Vega. She's a writer from the, the generation of the 70s. And I also like it because there she's actually trying to look at Puerto Rico within the Caribbean. And again, as a colony of the United States, we tend to look at the U.S. That's the culture that we want to imitate. Not not everybody, but I'm, you know, I'm generalizing. But she actually wants Puerto Rico to look at the other parts of the Caribbean. And so there are stories about Haiti, about Martinique, about the independence movement in Puerto Rico that hasn't been, uh, many people do not even know that much about it, although there's some very important stories about it. And so I think it's a, it's a collection of short stories, a tiny book. You can read it in an afternoon, but it's actually very interesting how she manages to connect Puerto Rico to, the, to, to its Caribbean identity. And so that will be two books that I will recommend to start to show a very complex Caribbean that is inhabited by people from almost all all the continents. I am so grateful for your coming in and joining us today. I know you're going to have a great year as a visiting scholar, and I know that the members of our campus communities are going to really enjoy the opportunity to have whole new worlds opened up to them uh, through your work. Thanks so much for coming in and spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. 
Cedric Wilson is lead producer, Virginia Laura is managing producer, and Hadley Kelly is the PBK producer on the show. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our Visiting Scholar program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time. <laughs>